Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Today's podcast is an article written by John Somery Smith for the Book Collector in winter 2008. It is the first that he wrote for the journal and is entitled Tools of Execution, the Library Sales of Robert J. Vanderbilt and Howard Colvin. The reader is James Fleming. Over the summer, I was involved with two contrasting libraries. The first belonged to Robert J. Vanderbilt, Jr., who would be remembered by an older generation as the owner and manager of the Holiday Bookshop, incorporating the Periscope Bookshop, in mid-Manhattan during the 1950s. His wife has given me a collection of the shop's flyers and ephemera from that period, including Christmas lists designed by E. McKnight Kaufer, and I imagine it as a New York equivalent of Hayward Hill in London. They knew their customers well enough to recommend books to them that they themselves had read and enjoyed. The business had a reputation for concentrating on new English books and their authors. Bob, whom I got to know well when he came to live in England, had a particular liking for the novels of Anthony Powell. This led not only to his reissuing two of Powell's pre-war novels, Venusburg and Agents and Patients, published in 1952 under the imprint Periscope Holiday, as two novels, the first American editions of each with a specially commissioned Osbert Lancaster dust wrapper, but to a considerable friendship with the author and his wife Violet, both sides of their correspondence surviving. When I was first shown Bob's books in 2005, he would already have been unable to answer any questions about their history. For many reasons, this was a real pity, not least because he would have enjoyed discussing his likes and dislikes. I would have been especially intrigued to hear about a visit paid to Choate, where Bob was at school in 1934, by Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. It seems such an incongruous occasion. He was probably near the top of the school and possibly running a literary society. Both the ladies inscribed books to him by name, and this could only have been practical if he had been warned beforehand and bought copies of two suitable titles. The autobiography of Alice B. Toklas had been published in the previous year, and Toklas's presentation inscription read, O warm remembrance, and it will be for me, of him and of Choate. The inscription in Stein's Portraits and Prayers, 1934, was even more Delphic, to Robert J. Vanderbilt, who so nicely drew and who so nicely could do, if I have not had to do, that is to introduce to. A parodist would find it hard to improve on this. Thanks to his bookselling role, he had some presentation copies from a later period. Other Faces, Other Rooms. 1948, inscribed to him by Truman Capote, and a series of Edward Gorey's books starting with The Unstrung Harp or Mr. Earbrass Writes a Novel, 1953. But Bob was more of a reader than a collector. In 1934, when we know he was still at school, he was buying new copies of John O'Hara's Appointment in Samara, his first book, and William Faulkner's 
Dr. Martino and other stories. The first had no dust wrapper. The second, almost miraculously, had. With his priorities, he wouldn't have worried, as so many first edition readers do about the presence of a dust wrapper. He looked after his books, but he would have felt no qualms about his copy of A Question of Upbringing having lost its dust wrapper at some stage in his ownership. He shared many tastes with Hayward Hill, for Evelyn Wall, Cyril Connolly, James Lee's Mill, and Anthony Trollope in the world's classics edition, which he would carry around and abroad in his pocket. All but Trollope belonged to the generation ten years older than himself, authors who were making their reputations at the time he was running an Anglophile bookshop. He may have outgrown his early taste for Ronald Furbank, or agreed on the faison des quality of Simon Raven, both heavily represented in his tribute catalogue published by Tindley and Chapman, from the shelves of Robert J. Vanderbilt, September 2008, but he wouldn't have wanted to dispose of them in case he decided to reread them. So when I was asked on this first visit for my advice, I suggested that everything should be left in its familiar place on his shelves. I felt I could not remove them while he was still living in the house. Circumstances have now changed. I would have liked him to have known how much pleasure his catalogue has given to its recipient readers. There was no connection between Bob Vanderbilt and the late Sir Howard Colvin, except that they were of much the same age. There was a slight overlap in their reading tastes for the novels of Anthony Trollope and the diaries of Jim Lease Milne, but their careers and collecting were a long way apart. Colvin's devotion to scholarship was emphasised in all his obituaries. The Independent hailed him as the greatest architectural historian of his time and perhaps ever. The fourth edition of his A Biographical Dictionary of British Architects, 1660 to 1840, first published in 1954, appeared in May, five months after his death. He was admired and appreciated by all students of architecture, whether as colleague, competitor or disciple. I felt this strongly when I was first introduced to his library in early April. His books were shelved in the most accessible way he could devise for the house in North Oxford he had himself designed in about 1960. He knew exactly where to put his hands on everything. French, German or Italian architects and monuments, travel in Wales, Scotland and Ireland, historiography, Gothic revival in the early Victorians, guides to country houses at every level, enough family history and genealogy to answer all but the most abstruse heraldic problems. Some sympathetic English authors such as Jane Austen and Thomas Love Peacock, and a mass of pamphlets and off-prints filed in careful categories. On a working surface in the room upstairs, lit by the morning sun, and looking over a delightful garden towards the Tower of the Winds, lay penciled notes in his meticulous hand, waiting for his ghostly return. His dining room had one wall devoted to the gentleman's magazine, later catalogued as a near-complete set. There were more than 150 bound volumes of country life, presumably collected at different times because the bindings were far from uniform. If spare shelves could be accommodated in a nook or cranny, they were. 
When I thought I had seen everything, I was shown the cloakroom by the front door, where a run of small red county guides had found their way. I was assured that he had occasionally done some culling to keep all his books under the same roof, and there may well have been some pre-1960 treasures from his collecting for which he later found no practical use. He continued to buy until just before his death. Hugh Pagan told me that he had sent off a book from his current catalogue only to see a notice of Colvin's death a week later. I was then still running Hayward Hill, but the date of my retirement from a regime that had lasted since 1974 had already been fixed. To catalogue Howard Colvin's library seemed a wonderful prospect. The lists would have provided an historical record of the library's subtleties, as well as of high spots such as Kip and Vitruvius Britannicus. They would have been appreciated by the friends of his who either wanted a keepsake or didn't want to spend 350 quid. Nor were they likely to buy a 25-book lot out of which they required no more than two titles. It would have been a customer-friendly project that might well have lasted a year or 18 months and would have brought intangible rewards as well as a commercial profit. But the regime changed at Hayward Hill, and I will never now know if our prospective offer would have been acceptable to the Colvin executors. As it was, Bloomsbury Auctions took the whole collection, catalogued it during the summer, and offered it for sale on the 25th of September. A lifelong bookseller is bound to criticise an auctioneer's methods. A friend described their efforts as enticingly cursory. Bloomsbury asked John Harris to write an introduction to the catalogue. They provided helpful illustrations, though some were misplaced, and they encouraged plenty of buyers to take part, in person, on the telephone or online. But I couldn't help noticing one professional bookman, Peter Miller from York, turning away from his hours of viewing and leaving disappointed and disillusioned. His shop's name wasn't mentioned at the sale, any more than that of Colvin's fellow scholar, David Watkin. The latter had picked out the copy of his C.R. Cockerell biography into which Colvin had tucked a sheaf of letters. Look, he said, doesn't it sound formal that in 1969 I was writing to him as dear Colvin, and that he replied, dear Watkin? Well, that was then the convention for civilised dons, and it probably took five years before they started using Christian names. In commercial terms, Bloomsbury were extremely pleased. In the short run, it doesn't matter if a working library is temporarily shown as a haphazard hodgepodge as long as the results are profitable. Perhaps I set too much store by presentation? Perhaps I shouldn't deplore the fact that by the second day of viewing, no more than two days were allowed because of pressure from next week's sale, one of the few non-architectural lots had been so muddled that no single volume of Shakespeare's plays, world's classics, nine volumes, Peacock's novels, Dent, edited by Edward Garnett, ten volumes, or Jane Austen, the standard R.W. Chapman Oxford edition, five volumes, was next to a uniform companion. By sorting them into their component sets, I probably ensured they found a relatively happy buyer. An auctioneer's hammer is a tool of execution. 
He, or in this case she, had no time or room for nostalgia or second thoughts. Howard Colvin's library painstakingly collected and used for more than 70 years was dispatched in less than four hours. It will now be for some patient booksellers to continue the process of redistribution. That was James Fleming reading Tools of Execution, The Library Sales of Robert J. Vanderbilt and Howard Colvin, written by John Somery Smith and published in the Book Collector for Winter 2008. If you enjoyed this Book Collector podcast, you can find many more on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or via our website. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.